All right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to try to cover tonight in the time that we have two sections, verses 19 through 24 and then verses 25 through 30. Now I'm going to read to you verses 19 through 24 and we're going to begin to break those down after we finish the section we were at last time. All right, there's just two verses at the very end that Paul says something that we just can't skip over. But what we're going to do now is go into chapter 2, verses 19 through 24, and I'll read it to you, and then we'll deal with chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, and move right in, flow right into the, ver the following verses that we're reading. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. Alright? Now, as you know, if you've been looking at this study, Paul at the beginning in chapter 1 said that he wasn't sure whether or not he was going to live or die. He's wrestling with what was going to happen to him as he was in this prison. He said, if I go and die and I go with be with Christ, that's awesome. That's the best. Yet, if I stay in the body, that's more fruitful labor, and I get more reward in heaven for what God does through me in these days that He leaves me on the earth. And then he says, knowing this, I kind of think I'm supposed to stay and help you in your progress in the faith. Yet, as you know, as you keep reading, you'll see him still kind of wrestle with this issue. Because he doesn't know for sure. God hasn't given him a word, yes, you'll be released, or no, you won't. He just knows that there's a possibility he could be put to death here. He doesn't know if this is his last imprisonment. Yet he's sensing that God hasn't said that this is the time. Now, if you do a study of Paul's life, you know you go to 2 Timothy, the last book that we have that he wrote. He knew at that moment that his time was up. He said, I finished the race. I, I fought the fight. I know that this is it. I, I'm being poured out like a drink offering is what he said. In this instance, he's at this moment not really sure. If you were to ask him to pin it down... He would lean toward that he was not going to die and that he was going to be released from this imprisonment, as you'll see. But look at verses 17 and 18, and he makes an interesting statement here. And we just can't leave on and head on to the next section without dealing with what we didn't get to in the last time we were together. Paul says in verse 17 of chapter 2, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering for your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, look at what he just said. He said, if I'm to die in this process of being used by God, remember we looked last time we were together at how they were his sacrifice. Paul had a plan for his life. He was going to move up in the realm of the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees, and he was trying to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he had a zeal for his people and to be in leadership, yet God had a totally different plan for his life. Actually, Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and following shows us that Paul then realized God had set him apart to be a preacher to the Gentiles before he was even born. And we've looked at the fact that as part of our life, what it really means to, to surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ is not all just receive His forgiveness for salvation, but to also understand that He has a purpose that He wants to accomplish for each and every one of us. And it's different for each of us. And that's one of the problems with the church. We try to make everybody look alike. But at the same time, in order for us to be willing to go where God wants us to go, we have to lay down the plan we had for our life, correct? How many of you, show of hands, your life has gone exactly like you had in mind? Exactly. And Paul's come to realize now that here he is, this guy who had this plan to just move on up the ladder in the Jewish leadership. He's now sitting in prison, hated by those same people he wanted to be respected by. 
Though they're chasing him all over Eastern Europe, I mean, not Eastern Europe, sorry, uh, Southeastern Asia. They're chasing him all over that area, trying to kill him. And he said to them in verse, uh, said verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless, innocent children without blemish, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I didn't run in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Look at what he says. He says, you guys coming to faith, you, God did that through me, and that is my gift to him. That is my sacrifice to him. Because this wasn't the life I had in mind, but this is the life he had in mind for me. And the fact that you guys have come to faith, that's my offering to God, because I'm being used to him the way he has in mind. And then he says this, I'm glad if I'm to die, if they're to, on top of you guys being my sacrificial offering, if he were to then take my life and pour it out on top of the offering as well, you remember the last time we were together, we talked about how the, the priest would offer the sacrifice, but then, then sometimes they would give a libation where they'd take wine and pour it on top of it as well. He said, if I'm to be that wine poured on top of the offering, on top of the sacrifice of you guys to God, and then they take me and kill me on top of you, I'm glad. And I rejoice. And... You should rejoice and be glad with me. Now, we're going to open it up for a little discussion here. What in the world is Paul talking about? Why is he saying, if I die in this process, I'm glad and I rejoice. And likewise, you should be happy with me. Definitely, that's a part of it. It's, but it's more than the fact that he's going home. But that's a part of it. Go ahead. All right, well, what do you mean? You're right, but let's, let's clarify, because sometimes we just throw that word sovereignty to God. Well, let's go deeper. What, he's, what he is experiencing, what he senses happening, he believes that all the events are of the hand of God. All of them. Okay, this is where we're going. Good for you. Let's take it to the next level. Paul says, I've given up looking at my life as if it's going the way I want. My main focus now is, am I in the center of the will of God? If in the center of the will of God it means I die, that's great. If it means I stay, that's going to be good too. My will has been laid aside so that my purpose is now to live all the time trusting that where I'm at is what God has in mind. And folks, you know that peace or no peace you get when you're in His will and when you're out of His will. You know what I'm talking about? In those times, even though it looks crazy, but you just have this peace that passes understanding. That's what he's seeking. He says, you should be glad for me because where I'm at right now is I am in the center of his will. I know it. I'm okay. And that's where I want to stay. And you should rejoice with me. Oh, and you should be the same way. Can, we're not going to ask you to answer this question, but can you say that right now you're in the center of his will? You know this, the life he has for you. You're trusting him. I'm not asking if it's working out the way you wanted it to. I'm saying, are you at that point where you are just walking with God? You don't know how tomorrow's going to go. We're not promised tomorrow. But you know that where you're at right now is where he wants you to be, and you're trusting him for today. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day's got enough trouble of its own. You can't abide tomorrow. You can only abide right now. I have the privilege of going down to uh, um, Miami. Uh, I'm leaving Thursday to go speak at a conference on Friday, and I hope none of them hear this recording before then, because I'm going to give you a little heads up where I'm going. They've asked me to come and speak on faith funding. 
And they brought all the, the, the port ministry people from around the U.S. to this Miami port. We're going to meet at a hotel for a conference. And they've asked me to speak to them about faith funding. They, their, their reason for asking is, as most ministries do, they wrestle with how do you raise funds? And they want me to come and teach them how to raise funds. I hear you laughing. You know I don't raise funds. Yet, I'm to go there and tell them that the fact that they're even saying what's the right way to do it is the wrong question. The issue is not how do you do it? Because I'm going to lay it all out for them scripturally. That in this one instance, here's how God provided for this widow. He said it's going to look like you don't have anything, but every time you open the cupboard, there'll be something there. He says that his other widow sell all the extra oil and you're going to live off the surplus. You're always going to have a big balance in your bank account. He says to this, uh, Ezra says, when he goes to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he says, I don't want any help from anybody. I want the glory to all go to God. Yet Nehemiah, doing the exact same thing called by God, said he prayed to the Lord and then he asked for help. So which is it? Do we just trust God and don't ask anybody like George Mueller? Or do we ask people? If you remember, there's some guy that taught you that God doesn't duplicate his methods. And the issue is not, how do we do it? The issue is, are you walking with him today? Are you doing what he's asked you to do in this situation? What we do even in Christian ministries is fall into this mindset of focusing on how do we do it? I just want to do it right. God, just tell me how to do it, and I want to do it right. And we think that's the way you always do it. And we fight with each other, don't we? Don't we fight with each other as Christians over how to evangelize? Because how God had us do it in that instance, we saw success, and we think that's the way God has us to witness. And we write our books on this is the only way that you're really supposed to witness. Or when it comes to worship, or music, or preaching, we keep falling into, we want to, just tell me how to do it. I want to go and encourage them and say, the question is not, what's the right way to do it? The question is, what's God telling you in your ministry right now? If you stay in that place, you'll be in the center of his will. Whether you live or you die, whether the money comes in or it doesn't come in. By the way, isn't that what somebody here in Philippians chapter 4 says a little bit later on? I've learned the secret of being content. I know what it is to have plenty. I know what it is to be in want. The secret is not whether or not I have a big bank account or not. The issue is Christ. Christ in me, strengthening me to do whatever it is he's asked me to do. And that's why he's sitting in prison and he says, look, I don't know. I kind of lean toward the fact that I'm not going to die. But if God chooses that I die, that's cool. I'm glad. And you should be glad with me because I'm where I belong. I'm going to ask you again. Don't have to answer it now. Are you in the center of his will? Are you living right now what he has for you to live, the life he has? Don't worry about where you're going or whether or not how you even got there. All right, do you right now sense that peace that says, okay, Lord, I don't know what's happening tomorrow, but I trust that where I'm at is where you want me to be. And we have learned to live that in our life. This is my, it was funny. We were, we were on the way home because of all these change of plans. Um, at one part of the drive, uh, we didn't know we were going to sleep that night. And so we were stopped at, 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 a, at a gas station to get some gas, and there's a Red Robin across the street. And if you haven't had Red, Rob, Red Robin, they're a good hamburger place. What's really good is, is they'll bring you all the french fries you want. They just keep bringing them. They're really good. And so we stopped at the Red Robin. As we're getting out of the car, I said, praise the Lord. We don't even know where we're sleeping tonight. It was an exciting thing because I know God's going to work it out. Where most people are going, we don't know where we're even going to sleep tonight. 
I was excited because I already know God's got it in mind. And by the way, that place we slept that night ended up being the exact same hotel Becky's sister and her husband and their cousin stayed at. Just happened. God's awesome. But here's the deal. My daughter, Elise, I think it was, immediately puts on Facebook through her phone. This is what traveling with my dad is like. He just said, praise the Lord, we don't know where we're sleeping tonight. <laughs> and I thought, that is awesome. Preach it, girl, preach it. Now, let's move on into chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. And now look at verse 24. He says, and I trust in the Lord that, I shortly, that shortly I myself will come also. Now, listen, some of your translations don't say hope and trust. What do they say? Some of your translations say trust and trust, right? What does yours say? Confident. Confident. That's good. Confident. Did any of your translations say trust and trust? Some of them, yeah. Yeah. New King James puts it trust and trust. Here's what I want to do. I want to kind of show you that I think the ESV does a good job to bring out the difference between the two. They could be translated trust and trust, but there's a slight difference in the words that actually one word, the one described here in verse 19 as hope, actually is a future trust. And the one in verse 24 is a present trust. In other words, you can trust that an airplane will take you to your destination next week. Or you can trust it while you're actually flying on it. Do you understand the difference? There's a future trust. I trust that that will take, take care of itself and it'll happen when it does. Or you're actually trusting at that moment while you're in the midst of it. By the way, which one's harder? The one in the midst of it, isn't it? It's very easy for us to say, I trust the Lord's got it. But then in that moment when you don't know what he's going to do and it doesn't seem like he's come through and the check didn't come in the mail or so-and-so didn't get better, it's in those instances that we find out whether or not we really trust him. It's easy to say, I trust God's, God's got it. But when you're in the middle of it, it's hard, is it not? Because that's when our flesh wants to rise up and say, maybe we need to. Maybe we need to. Maybe God's wanting me. Folks, let me just tell you something about your God. He will direct your paths. He will give wisdom if you ask without doubting. If any time it starts with maybe you haven't heard from God, you're trying to figure it out. Stop. Would, could, should. No, stop, stop, stop. One of the biggest things that helped me in my walk with the Lord was for years, I misunderstood how God talked. And so Satan would talk to me a lot and pretend to be God. Have you ever had that happen? Satan wants to be God, doesn't he? And he'll talk to you pretending he is God. I'd be driving down the road and I'd see someone broke down. And I'd have this thought come through my mind. The right thing to do would probably be to pull over. The, as a Christian, I probably ought to help. I used to think it was God. Of course, sometimes I would. Sometimes I would drive and feel guilty. I've come to realize over the years, when my father wanted me to pull over, he would say, help them. He'd say, pull over. It would be clear. It'd be direct. It wasn't a maybe, ought to, should. Show me anywhere where God says, you ought to, you should. You ought to think about. He would say, do it. And when I started to realize the difference between who was really talking, it started to really free me up to understand, hey, half the time, I spent more pressure on myself because I was trying to do the right thing according to Christianity instead of following my Lord and doing what he said to do. And folks, it's hard for us to understand but sometimes God might have you pass that person and not help. Else wants. We don't, yeah, it, we, that could be part of what it is. We don't know. I wouldn't even worry about trying to figure out why. But did Jesus heal everybody? He says, I only do 
what I see my father doing. I only do what my father has me to do. My father's always at his work to this very day, but I'm only doing what the father would have me do. Boy, that's not easy. Yes, we're not real good at it. Partially because for such a long period of time in the, our, our life as Christians, the church has said, here's how it's always to be done. Hasn't, isn't that how they taught it to us? The Christian response is. The Christian way to do it is. And we have been taught our whole life to follow the rules, to follow the formula. And then we measure results over how well we're doing. We grew up in those churches where they had the plaques on each side that said how many were in Sunday school last week and how, many, how much the offering was. And we've been taught to focus on the results. And if we're not getting results, maybe we need to change our methods so that we can get better results. And we spend all our time trying to go do the work of the Lord. How many of you have ever heard this phrase in your church? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You ever heard that one? Let me tell you, that's horrible theology. Because anything not done by Christ will not last. Anything done for God in your flesh, not of Him, it'll burn. The flesh counts for nothing before God. You want proof? Abraham was told by God, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and sacrifice him for me on a mountain that I'll show you. How many sons did Abraham have when God told him to take his only son? He had two. No, say, well, it says your only son whom you love. He only loved. No, no, no. He loved them both. Because in chapter 17 of Genesis, Abraham cries out to God and says, oh, that your blessing will come through Ishmael. And God says, it's not him. Don't hear me wrong. God loved Ishmael. He cared for Hagar. He provided for them when they were chased out into the desert by Sarah. He provided food and water and he cared for them. But Ishmael was made by Abraham's effort of the flesh. And the flesh counts for nothing before God. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done through or by Christ will last. And when if you get focused on the results, you're going to be starting to figure out what can we do to get better results. And you're going to come up with your own plan. And God is not going to leave you nor forsake you. But he's just going to sit back and say, knock yourself out. Go do it. And folks, I don't want to live like that anymore. I spent too many years of my life trying to do for God. And now we're reaping the joy of, we don't know where we're going to sleep tonight. We don't know what's going to happen next. But I can tell you, this is cool. And I'm trusting him in the future. And I'm trusting him now. And there is a difference. Are you there both places? Are you there both places? All right. Paul then spoke of wanting to send Timothy to them. Remember back at the beginning of the letter, he says, Paul and Timothy to the church in Philippi. First of all, Paul saw Timothy as someone like himself, who would be more focused on others than himself. And Timothy had proven himself to be one who lived out what Paul was challenging the Philippian believers to live. He could be used by God and Paul because he was usable. Now I'm going to take you to a passage of scripture that Satan's going to want to try to make you feel guilty and, and condemn you with. I don't want you to read it that way. I want you to just let the Spirit of God show you the truth of the passage. Don't fall under condemnation, because there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. But go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to read to you verses 14 through 21. It says, remind them of these things. Paul's writing to Timothy, by the way, at this point. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, 
a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are porcelain nowadays. Some for honorable use. What does he say? And some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. What he's saying here is this, is God doesn't want perfection. He wants someone that's usable. As you've heard me say before, the issue is not, are you living it perfectly? The issue is, are you progressing in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? The issue is not, did you sin or do you sin? We still all sin. Yet, but the issue is, are you sinning less? Are you making that progression in your walk with the Lord? Are you further along in your knowledge of Him, in your relationship with Him, in your trust in Him than you were years ago? Are you growing? And are you being able to be used of Him? Or are you so stuck in the old way that even though you're His and you belong to the house, He can't use you for public purposes? For years... I used to hear passages like, be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect, and feel condemned because I wasn't perfect. Or be holy, for God's holy, for I'm holy, God says. And I feel condemned because I'm, I'm not holy. Until I began to really take a close look. And if you go to that passage in Matthew, where Jesus says, be ye perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect, in the context, he's actually in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's been laying out to these Pharisees who think they're righteous before God. You think you're righteous because you haven't murdered? I say if you've been angry with someone, you've committed murder in your heart. You say you're righteous in the eyes of God because you haven't committed adultery? I say if you look lustfully after a woman, you've committed adultery. You think, <laughs> you think you're good enough. If you think you are good enough, you want to be able to be with God, you've got to be perfect as God. The passage was not being said by Jesus to tell us how to live. As many people have said, Jesus said, be perfect. No, in the context, he was saying, you want to be righteous in and of yourself? You think you're good enough? You have to be perfect. What was he saying? Once you realize you can't be perfect, you're ready for this salvation that God offers. Oh, in that passage in Peter that talks about be holy for I'm holy, all it simply means is not pure in what you do, but set apart. The word holy means set apart. It's special. It's not like the others. It's, well, I've got a tie that's holy. You say, ooh, what made this tie holy? Well, it's the one I wear every year on Easter. It's been set apart. It's the only one. I've been wearing it for 20-something years now. Some of you might have seen it. It's my polo tie, which shows you how new it is. It's a polo, and it's, it's the colors of like an Easter egg. And I only wear it on Easter Sunday. It's plaid. It's been set apart for a special purpose. And when God says, be holy, for I'm holy, he's saying, set yourself apart for the purpose for which I have, just like Jesus did. Did Jesus try to be everything to everybody? Even when Mary and Martha said, Lord, the one you love is sick, he didn't move. 
He wasn't trying to make everybody else happy. He was living what the Father told him to do. When his brothers made fun of him in John chapter 7 and said, hey, if you're going to make yourself a public figure, why don't you go ahead and show yourself at the feast? And he said, for you, any time is right. For me, it's not the time. So God, when he talks to us about being useful for honorable purposes and being holy and set apart for his purposes, he's not saying, are you living perfectly? He's saying, are you moldable? Are you being, can God use you? Or are you so stuck in how you think it ought to be that he can't use you? That's all it is. Are you teachable? Oh, by the way, you want to talk about being moldable and teachable and humble and willing to lay down, not my plans for my life, but what God has in mind? Go with me to Acts chapter 16 and look at what it says here about Timothy, this guy that he's recommending to them. You want proof (laughs) that Timothy is moldable? Acts chapter 16, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, Paul also came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and what? How old's Timothy at this time? He's a young man. I thank God my circumcision happened eight days, or actually not even eight days after I was born, because I don't remember it. I'm sure I didn't like it at the time, but thank God it's not even a memory. Can you even imagine at that age saying, okay, if that's what you got to do for me to go with you? Yeah. Paul wanted to, Timothy to accompany him. Yeah, spoken like a woman. Is that what it is? And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, and they all, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, and they devoted, uh, delivered to them the observance of the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, if you know the story, what happens next here in Acts 16? Not quite. He wants to go into Asia. The Spirit won't let him. Tries to go into Mysia. The Spirit said no. Has the dream of the man of Macedonia saying, come and bring the gospel to us. So then they knew this is where God wanted us to go. And they went to Macedonia. They don't know where yet. Again, they're living in that, Lord, what would you have us do now? They didn't show up in Macedonia with their plan book of how you go and evangelize a city. They didn't have their formula all mapped out. Some of our ministries have put together, here, when you get to a city, here's what you do. No, there are principles that God's given, but we have to learn to listen. He went into the city looking for people who are being drawn by the Spirit of God. So he goes to a place of prayer, finds it down by the water. There are some women there, and they began to share the gospel, and God began to show that that's where he was at work, and Lydia becomes saved. And By the way, who's with him when all this happens? Timothy. The church in Philippi knew who Timothy was. Oh, well, look at verse 22. Of Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 22. He says, But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. And I therefore hope to send him, just, uh, send him soon as I see, see as how it will go with me. Now, the people in Timothy knew, I'm sorry, the people in Philippi knew who Timothy was because he had actually been there during those whole time that Paul was in Philippi. And so I want to kind of go down this road for just a little bit. I don't want to go into it too much because I don't want you to turn into the latest formula. All right. How did Timothy grow into someone Paul could send in his place? 
That's a question. How did Timothy grow into someone that Paul could send in his place? How did Timothy learn in the ministry in such a way that Paul could feel confident that he was able to go do what it is as he would send them to him in his place to go and encourage them and to teach them? And in certain places later on, he sends them to another place to be a pastor of a church. How did Paul, I mean, sorry, how did Timothy get there? He saw Paul living it. Keep going. It was kind of like a protege. He was mentored. They did it side by side. Folks, again, please don't turn this into the latest formula for discipleship. But there's some principle here. There's some truth here that you need to let the Spirit of God show you how to apply it. But, well, I put in my notes here. I thank God for Buford Easley. Buford Easley was used of God. Man, can't talk about it without crying. But he was used of God in my life in this way. Oh, I had been called by God when I was 13. I didn't really surrender to his call to preach until I was 16. Sorry, not 16, 19, six years later. And I served as a youth pastor at a church in Palm Bay, and then youth pastor at Atlantic, then back again the next summer as a youth pastor at that church in Palm Bay, and then went off to seminary. And when I showed up at seminary, the very first Sunday I went to this church that God kind of showed me where he wanted me to go, and I went to this church on a Sunday evening, and I walked up to the senior pastor afterwards. You have to realize it was a big church. They had seven pastors on staff, and they had uh, about 1,500 to 2,000 people on a Sunday morning. And I walked straight up to him after the service, and I said, I'm a brand-new seminary student. My name's Jim Johnson, and I've been a youth pastor in three summers at a couple different churches, and God's called me to preach, and I just I want experience. Would you let me come to work here? And he said, show up tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Floored me. I was like, now, you have to realize, in seminary, there's no classes on Mondays, because a lot of the pastors that are in seminary travel long distances on the weekends to go pastor churches all over the South. And there in New Orleans, there's no seminary on Monday morning. And so Monday morning, I showed up at Buford Easley's office with the Bible in my hand, ready to go. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, oh, no. He said, you see those buildings out there, portable buildings? We need to tear them down, because we're going to be building new ones. He said, but uh, I don't. I don't do things like a lot of people. He said, I'm an old country boy from Holcomb, Mississippi. And uh, there's a lot of good material in those buildings, and we could reuse them. So he said, there's a trailer, a dumpster trailer there next to you. He said, when you get up on the roof, just take the shingles and the nails off and throw them in the trailer. But when you get to the plywood, he said, don't ruin the plywood. There's four by eight sheets of plywood. We could use that again. Pull the nails carefully and stack all the plywood on the ground. When you get to the trusses, you'll be two, see two by eights and two by sixes. And I want the two by sixes in one pile, two by eights in another. When you get to the sheetrock inside, he said, you can just rip that off and throw it away. He said, but there's good insulation in between the studs, and I don't want to lose it. He said, uh, I want you to pull the staples and roll up that insulation. Oh, no. And there's Romex wire in between the studs. I want you to snip the ends and then feed it through and wind it up. We could use that again. And you just tap the 2 by 4 at the bottom and the top gently, and you can pull it out. And he described how to dismantle these portable buildings. And, and I said, that'll take months. He said, it's up to you how long it takes. I'll pay you $5 an hour. Now, I can be honest with you. At that time, I didn't have any money, and $5 an hour sounded really, really good, and I needed, I needed money, so I said, okay. And me and this one other seminary student, James Kraft, on weekends and afternoons and Mondays, took us two and a half months to tear down those buildings, and we got them all done. And I didn't know it, but Buford was testing me. See, he had a lot of seminary boys come and say, I want to go serve in ministry. But he was wanting to know if I was willing to roll up my sleeves. If I was willing to get dirty. When I finished, I said, what do you want me to do now? He said, I want you to teach a Sunday school class here. I said, oh, cool, which one? 
He said, it doesn't work like that. He said, uh, I want you to teach a class of people that don't come to Sunday school. He said, we get a lot of folks that come every Sunday for worship, but they don't come an hour ahead of time for Bible study. I want you to get them in your class. He said, oh, by the way, he said, uh, um, you can't take from any other class. And he gave me a list of people that weren't coming to Sunday school. And I started making phone calls and house visits. And I'd say, you come every week for worship, but you don't come for that time ahead of time to study the Bible. Why not? And they'd say, well, I'm afraid someone's going to ask me to read. And I can't say Mephibosheth. And I'm afraid someone's going to ask me a Bible question. I don't know the answer. I'm afraid someone's going to ask me to pray. And I said, what if I designed a class where I just taught you the Bible? I never asked you a question. And I didn't ask you to read. And I didn't ask you to pray. They said, we come to a class like that. And God started to do a work, and that class grew to be the second largest class in the whole church. The only one bigger was the senior pastor's Sunday school class. And during those years, while I was in seminary, Buford took me under his wing. As that's how the class started to grow, he called me into his office. He said, I want you to do us a favor. I said, what's that? He said, I want you to come on staff. I said, oh, cool. Uh, what will be my title? We've got to minister youth, minister children, minister young couples, minister music. What's mine? He said, your title will be associate pastor of everything I don't want to do and everything I can't. <laughs> and he literally made me his right-hand man. Here I was, brand new, still wet behind the ears, first year seminary, and now I'm on staff part-time at this big church, and I'm literally the senior pastor's right-hand man, whatever. I'm kind of over the other guys. I mean, give you an example. We're sitting there in staff meeting one day, and Shell Oil Company calls. And they said, we want Buford to come and teach a Bible study to the employees at, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the cafeteria for the Shell Oil Company at One Shell Plaza, downtown New Orleans, for anybody that wants to come. He said, okay, I'll be there. He hung up the phone. He turned to me. He said, Jim, you're teaching Bible study at Shell Oil Company on Monday. <laughs> I, said, I said, I just heard you tell them that you were going to be there. He said, they'll figure out that you're not me when you get there. Next thing you know, I'm preaching, I'm teaching Bible study for Shell Oil Company. I'm preaching on the radio, on TV. We had our own TV tape, taping studio, and I'm, I had a cable TV uh, program, and my head started to get big. I wasn't ready for ministry like I thought, but Buford had to keep bringing me along. I thank God for Buford Easley. I thank God for Daryl Stanford. Even in those years when I was there at Indy Atlantic, I was kind of just thrown into the fire. I didn't know what I was doing, but Daryl would work with me. Come alongside of me. He'd give me wisdom and say, I wouldn't do it that way. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And he walked me through it. And, well, let me show you real quick. Go to Acts 17. I want to show you. As if you, you don't see it unless you take the time to really look and study. But throughout all these journeys here, starting in Acts 16, Timothy's there. And then he leaves him and then picks him back up. And, and well, let's take a look. In Acts 16, we saw him start and, 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 and uh, come with him through Philippi, and they stayed on. And look at Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. It says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than the Thessalonians, uh, than those in Thessalonica. They, they uh, received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if the things were true. Many of them therefore believed with, uh, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So he's been traveling with them. Paul and Silas, as you know, have been with them and, uh, together, and Timothy's there. 
And at some point, because of Paul's safety and for the sake of his life, they have to get him out of that town because the Thessalonian Jews are trying to get him killed in the next town. So they send him off and they leave Paul, sorry, Timothy and Silas there. But Paul sends word from Athens, come visit. I want you to come catch up. Acts chapter 18, look at verses 1 through 11. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently uh, come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome and he went to see them and because he was of the same trade he stayed with them and worked for they were tent makers by trade and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and who? Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews of the, that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent from now on, and I'll go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, and his, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid to go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I'm with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So who's not with him for a year and six months as he does ministry in this town? Timothy. Oh, go to Acts chapter 19. Look at verses 21 and 22. In Acts 19 verse 21 it says this. It says, now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia, that's where Philippi is, and Achaia, and to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now listen, this is not the time that Paul's talking about in Philippians. But he sent them there before. And so I want you to understand that Paul's saying, look... You know who this guy is, and you know how he's helpful me in ministry. And he says, I hope to send him to you. I just hope to send him to you. Now, how did he get that way? He'd worked side by side with Paul. He learned the trade, if you will. I, don't even, I hate to even use that term because it's not a trade. It's learning how to do ministry together. We, we send people off to seminary. And they take courses or we have discipleship classes in our church, and learning information is valuable to an extent, but does it really prepare us for ministry? Those of you that are involved in uh, disaster relief, Duke, you can't learn that in a class. You can learn some things in chaplaincy training, but where are you really going to learn what it means to do ministry with someone who knows how to seek the Lord and follow the Lord? Working alongside of them. And in time, Paul said, you're ready. I send you on. Thank God for Buford. Because when I graduated seminary, I didn't want to be in New Orleans anymore. I'd been there for three years and I'd had my fill in New Orleans and I was ready to go preach somewhere in Florida. I wanted to go back to Florida and I wanted to go be a preacher in the church. And Buford said, Would you do us a favor? No, actually, first of all, he said, What are your plans? I said, Here are my plans. I said, Now that I'm graduated, I'm ready to, I'm ready to go back to Florida and preach. He said, uh, Well, while you're looking, while you've got your resume out, would you do us a favor? Would you come on staff here full time? Now, again, I needed money. So I thought, okay, this sounds good. God knows how to work with us when we're stupid. And I stayed on staff. And I'm sending resumes out. Nobody's interested. And I'm ready to go. I mean, I'm, I'm tired of this place. I want to go. Buford said, uh, six months later, he called me in his office. Would you do us a favor? I said, what's that? He said, uh, 
Would you stop looking? Now, it was years later that I had this conversation with him after I'd already left there and gone to pastor in Chicago and then in the Atlantic. Before he died, and I knew he was dying, I wanted to go see him one more time before he died. I knew I was going to preach at his funeral. He'd already asked me to preach at his funeral. But I didn't want that to be the last time I saw him. So I made a trip from First Baptist in the Atlantic when I was pastor and flew back to New Orleans to go meet with him one last time. He called me in his office and he said, Jim, when you graduated seminary and thought you were ready to go off and preach, you weren't ready. He didn't say to me at the time, you're not ready. He just said, we need you here. I thank God for him. And talking with the people in Chicago, even though they were looking for someone 55 years or older with so many years of experience, they didn't know how old I was, but they knew I wasn't 55. They said the reason why they considered me at that church, even though I didn't meet their qualifications, was because of the years of experience that I had at that church in New Orleans. Let me say this to you. I don't know what it is that God's doing in your life or how he wants to use you. It doesn't have to be some grand ministry or whatever it is. But the days you're in now are a part of that process. We keep thinking, when am I going to go do it? You are. You're in that shaping period. I loved the fact that when I finally let, resigned at Indy Atlantic and started off in this ministry, a lady ran up to Becky after my resignation that Sunday night and said, when did you know about this? <laughs> Becky's answer was so awesome. She said, I knew when I married him. It just took a while. <laughs> I knew this was what we were going to be doing. It just took a while. As I look back over my life, I thank God for those years. Now, trust me, in the middle of it, there are times I sit there, felt like I was spinning my wheels, wasting my time. Why am I not there yet? Why am I not getting there? God, when are we going to get and do some ministry? And all the while, I was in the process of being shaped into what I needed to be for the next phase. Satan's going to try to tell you, hurry up. Your father will move you when it's time. Understand that where you're at is a part of that whole process. Timothy went through years of this. It's been three years since Paul was in Philippi. And he says, I hope to send Timothy to you soon. How long had Timothy been traveling with Paul? Three years. Oh, by the way, please don't turn this into a formula, but there's a pattern. How long did he work with his disciples? Did Jesus? Three years. Oh, how long was Paul with Jesus in the desert of Arabia? Three years. Oh, that time that Moses was being weaned and being taught on the lap of his mother. Remember, he had been given to Pharaoh's daughter. But Miriam says, hey, who's going to nurse him? I know a lady. And he was brought back to his mama for three years. The length of time it typically takes to get weaned. Mama poured into the life of Moses, whispered in his ear, taught him. There's something about that three-year pattern. Again, please don't. But there's something there. We're in a hurry to go do. If you really believe that God's really in control, you'll see where you are as a part of the process. Oh, you'll know when it's time to move. You, he'll make you very uncomfortable. Take it from someone who knows. You'll know when it's time to move. He will make you very uncomfortable where you're at. But if it's not time to move, don't try to make it happen before you're ready. 
I hope now at this stage of my life, I'm not even 50 yet, but I pray that in where I am in my walk with the Lord, and I thank God for it, I'm able to pour into lives of pastors. There are pastors around the country, thank God, who actually call up and say, Jim, I need, I need, I need help, or would you come see me? Or I, I praise God for Pastor Leroy and how humble he is to just say, hey, here's what I'm going through. Let's talk. I, I've got one uh, pastor in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, I'm going to meet with between Tupelo, Mississippi, and Gainesville, Florida. We're going to meet for a couple of days because he's wrestling with the book of Revelation, and he wants my insight. I've got pastors and elders all around the country who are saying, I actually talked with my own pastor today, Pastor at First Merritt Island, and we talked for a while, and I get to pour into the lives of these young men. And I thank God for the opportunity I have to continue what those people did in my life. I thank God for Jim Henry, the wisdom that he poured into my life during the years that I was in the Atlantic. And Bob Willis hooked us up, and I can honestly tell you he's one of my good friends. But he poured into my life and when I needed it. Folks, what about you? Are you being discipled? Are you pouring into someone else's life? Again, please don't turn it into a formula. Please don't turn it into guilt and you've got to have so many people. Who are you connecting with? Tony Kessner and I spent six hours together today. It was awesome wrestled over the scriptures, just encouraged each other, and just loved on each other. I love the fact that I've been out of this town, and Tony and I are so good and so close. He sends me an email yesterday. He says, uh, when are you getting back in town? When are you stop fooling around, you can get back in town. <laughs> and I emailed him back and said, I just got back in town, but I'm still fooling around. <laughs> what about you? Who are you investing in? Someone pouring into your life? Are you pouring into somebody else's? Don't turn it into a formula. But there's a value in that. Um, we got time to do this real quick. Go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 25 through 30. I know we started about five, six minutes late, so we're actually on schedule. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 25 through 30. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, Epaphroditus had come from Philippi to visit Paul in his Roman imprisonment and to bring some money from them to help him in financial support. Jump over to chapter 4. Just look at verse 18. Uh, he says, I have received, verse, chapter 4, verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So this guy Epaphroditus was actually a member, if you want to use that term, of the church in Philippi. He actually was sent by the church to go find where Paul was in that imprisonment in Rome and to bring him financial love gift. The church had taken a love offering and, and uh, Paphroditus came. While he was there, he got very sick, almost to the point of death. And look closely. Paul now wishes to send him back to them because they heard he was very ill. And not only had the Philippians been concerned, Epaphroditus was concerned that they were concerned for him. I, folks, I don't know if you can get this or not, but this is a love that goes deeper than calling each other brother and sister. Did, did you catch what's going on here? They were concerned that they heard Epaphroditus was sick, and he was concerned that they were concerned. Now, 
Here's where we need to go in the time we have, and I don't think we have time to finish it, so we may have to pick up when we get back together next week. But the Bible here is showing us that there is this wonderful connection amongst believers that's deeper, like I said, than just saying, hey, brother, hey, sister. There's a concern for each other. You know, in Corinthians, the Bible says, if one suffers, we all suffer. If one rejoices, we all should rejoice. Now, let's first of all be honest. We ain't there, are we? Sad thing is, in most of our churches today, we know where you sit, and we might know your first name. Might not even know your last name. We don't know if you got kids. We don't know if this is your first marriage, second marriage. We don't know a whole lot about you. We know where you sit. Is God expecting us to get to this level of connection with everybody in our congregations? No. You say no awful quick. You're right. But why? I agree. Now, and I'm not putting you on the spot with this question. That all sounds wonderful, but do you have any biblical proof? Very good. Did you catch that? Jesus preached to the masses, but who got most of his time? The 12. And within the 12, there was Peter, James, and John who got a closer and more intimate time than the others even within the 12. And what I want you to hear, and, and this is where we're going to go when I come back, and we're going to, you've heard me talk on this before and teach on this before, but I, even though as I was kind of praying over my notes, I said, all right, Lord, they've heard this before, and I really feel like he wants me to teach it again. This is where the importance of elder-type leadership comes in. I don't care what you call them. You don't have to call them elders because that freaks some people out. But parental-type leadership where you trust your spiritual leaders in the church. Because as you're about to see when we get back together, Next week. God has designed that in the body, you need parents to kind of oversee the body and make sure the needs of the body are being taken care of. Yet, within the body, he's got different levels of leadership to make sure that those things are all being taken care of. But ultimately, the ones who actually do the work of ministering to each other is the body. Now, that's not how it typically works in our churches. We expect our pastor to be there for us at all times. And I'm going to kind of lay out for you when we get back together and show you from scriptures. Well, in Acts 6, we'll just touch on it. We'll come back to it next week. In Acts 6, as the church grew, there was a daily distribution of food to the widows in the church there. And there were some Grecian widows and Hebraic widows. And they started to be a fight over whether or not it was being done fairly. And the natural reaction of humans was, we need to go to the pastors and tell them about this problem. And if you go back and look at Acts 6, verses 1 through 4, the apostles said it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God, what it is that we've been called to do in ministry, to go wait on tables. Oh, by the way, if your pastor said that to you when you came and told him about the latest need, wouldn't it be right for me to neglect what I'm supposed to be doing to go wait on tables? He'd be fired. Because we expect the pastor to do the ministry. Biblically, I'm, you've heard me teach on it, but I'm going to lay it out in specific detail. Looking at scriptures you might not have even seen before. That God's design is that the pastors use their gifting and their calling to preach and teach and minister the word. People say, Jim, you sure know a lot of the Bible. That's because I don't go to committee meetings anymore. 
I haven't been to a business meeting, praise God, in a long, long time. I hope I don't go to another one. On top of that, though, what did they do? They set up what we saw there in Acts 6 now, as deacons. Now, listen closely. We do to our deacons the same thing we do to the pastors. We just expect the deacons now to wait on the tables. That's not what the Bible said. We're going to make sure the heinous responsibility over to them. In other words, they're going to make sure that the, the needs of the body are taken care of. That's going to be their responsibility. But you expect your deacons now to go visit everybody. You expect your deacons to always be at everything. You expect your deacons, just like you do your pastor, deacons supposed to be doing this. You, you, in some of your churches, you have a deacon family ministry plan where you've come up with this wonderful system. Actually, it was come up with years ago by a church in Alabama, and that church is so big, whatever it did, all the other Southern Baptist churches did. So, uh, but some of the churches now do this uh, deacon family ministry plan where they give each deacon so many families to look after. You know what's wrong? Some of those deacons don't have shepherding gifts. Oh, they have gifts that will be used to kind of make sure the physical needs of the body are taken care of. There's some deacons are real good at looking after. They send birthday cards to their families and members and all this stuff. There are others and people go, I don't even know who my deacon is. You ever heard someone say that? Who says you get a deacon? Go to Ephesians 4. We'll wrap up with Ephesians 4 and we'll come back to this whole topic next week. Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read it to you again. Verses 11 through 16. And he, meaning God, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip who? For the work of the ministry. To equip the body, the saints, for the work of the ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ. If you ask most churchgoers today, whose job is it to build up the body? They'd say the pastor. That's not what the Bible says. And I'm going to prove it to you again in the context here. It'll say it again. The body is supposed to be building up the body, not the pastor's. He gave these different, four different types of guys for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that the, it builds itself up in love. Listen closely, folks. I'm going to say something to you that you're not going to want to hear. But if your church is unhealthy, there's a strong chance it's not the pastor's fault. There is a greater chance, according to the scriptures, that if your church is not healthy, it's because the people are not ministering to each other. Oh, trust me. Pastors are guilty because a lot of pastors love to have their name on the church sign. A lot of them love to have their name on the bus. I'm going to ask you a biblical question. Who was the pastor of the church in Philippi? We don't know. You know why? Because the scripture doesn't say. Who was the pastor of the church in Corinth? The Bible doesn't say. Oh, we know in, in the church in Antioch there were prophets and teachers. And it listed five guys who were in spiritual leadership of that church, but we don't know who the pastor was. Yet, what do we do in our churches today? Our churches are known by, that's Brother So-and-So's church, that's Brother So-and-So's church. And we have, over the years, developed a model that is totally unbiblical, where we've expected one guy to be doing the work of the ministry. And folks, I'm going to show you scripturally that Paul cared, yet he didn't do the work of the ministry. 
What did he do? He sent so-and-so, he sent so-and-so, he made sure that they were taken care of, but he didn't do it. You gotta stop expecting your pastor to be the one who fixes the church. And first of all, you gotta find out, is this guy that's in leadership in our church, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher? Oh, and by the way, God never designed one guy to be the pastor. There should be a plurality of leadership. What does it say in Timothy? The elders, those who have the spiritual authority in the church, who rule well, who govern, who oversee the body, are worthy of what? Double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. Did you catch that? There are some elders that don't preach and teach. So we're going to take some time when we get back together, and we're going to lay it out, and we're going to show you that in order for the body's needs to be met, there needs to be a concern for each other, yes, but you're right. God didn't expect us to have that deep level with each other. It's not possible. But if your church has healthy organizational leadership, however it plays out for each church to be different, and that should change as the people change and God moves them and they come and go. But is there a parental authority that spiritually is looking after the body? Are there older kids who are making sure the physical needs, those are the deacons? You know, as our kids got older, we say, hey, Nicole, could you drive your brother to practice? Or at least could you help with dinner? They're not the parents yet, are they? But as they mature, we give them more responsibility to take care of the physical needs. Because in time, we want them to be parents. In our churches, are we raising up? from within the body, leadership? Or when we need a new pastor, do we put a search committee together to go look at a pile of resumes and do this? And then we expect that guy to come in and fix it. Oh, you know what? I think your church could function for a time very healthily without a pastor. If they've been taught the word and they're ministering to each other, the church will be pretty healthy. Again, you need that preaching and teaching, that continual instruction in the Lord, the oversight. But I'm telling you, if your church isn't healthy, chances are it's not the pastor's fault. Oh, is he guilty of some things? I'm sure. We all have a tendency to listen to people more than God. I can tell on your faces that even though you may agree with me, we don't like this one. It's, what's that? I said, that's okay. Yep. Well, here's why. Let's just say, and I'll wrap with this. If you say you were raised in a home where mom and dad did everything. 40, 50, 60 years you were raised in that home. And mom and dad said to you, you don't got to help with the dishes. You don't got to cut the grass. You don't got to make your bed. We'll do it. And then finally, mom and dad woke up. And sat Junior down at 60 years old, 70 years old, and said, Junior, we just realized we've been doing this wrong. You've got to make your own bed. You're supposed to be helping with the dishes. You're supposed to be doing some of this stuff. How do you think Junior's going to react? Not going to like it. Folks, some of you who are a little older than me, I know it's what you've been taught at your whole life. That's what it was. That's how it always was. And by the way, I can trace it all the way back to the King James translation. Because back when that was the only English translation we had, when every church was using King James, if you go look at the passage I just read to you from Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, this is how it words. It gave us the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edification of the body. 
Did you catch that? According to the King James translation, because of where that comma is, it doesn't say the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. It says equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edification of the body. Even though the further on in that context, it says the body edifies itself. We missed it. And for the longest time, it read to us like the ministers, the pastors were supposed to be doing the work of the ministry for the building up of the body. Every single English translation since the King James, including the new King James, has come to realize that comma should never have been there in the Greek. If you understand Greek sentence structure, it should have never been there all along. It should have said, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry and the building up of the body. So, next week, we're going to take a little time to look at that scripturally and then move into our next session. But in order for us to go there, we have to look at it. The body's going to be healthy. We need our Timothys and our Pauls and those kind of folks. But you're to be building up each other. And that's where you come in. You've been hearing me say to you all this time, what does God want to do through you? What is your ministry? You don't have to get a 501c3. You don't got off, start off and do Where do you fit into the body? I know what Ken, Ken does. Ken loves to get in one-on-one -on -one relationships, and he likes to use his gifts of service and helps. And he took me and AJ yesterday out fishing. My knees are burnt because of Ken. <laughs> but you know what? I thank God for it because that was, that's, his, that's one of his ministries. I got to spend time one-on-one -on -one with my son and out fishing. I won. I caught more fish. But it's only because of Ken using his gifts. It doesn't have to be some preaching, teaching, singing, whatever type of ministry. Where can you love on people and encourage them and bless them? I could go on and on. There's people all around here that are doing it in different ways. Jim with him collecting Bibles all over that go all over the world. But I want to encourage you. You want to have that rejoice and be glad feeling that we talked about at the very beginning? you got to find out what that is. What is it that he wants me to do? How does he want to use me in the body? When you're there, you don't care if you live or die. You're good. Let's pray together. Father, again, thank you for this chance to come and to study your word. I thank you for the fact that we're living in a day and age that we can just send out an email and everybody can show up. We didn't have to do smoke signals and stuff like that to try to get a hold of each other. Thank you for what you've done uh, and allowing so many people to be able to be here tonight. But thank you for Chris and the way that you've been using him and his gifts so that people can catch up with us if they're out of town and listen to this. And as he puts it on the website tomorrow, it's going to immediately go to so many different people's iPads and iPods and whatever. Uh, Lord, I thank you for that. But Lord, at the same time, you have a reason why you want us to study your word so that you can speak to us. May we not just hear you, but listen. We pray this in your name. Amen.